Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots, a podcast by the law firm of Ogletree Deacons for employers and those in their legal safety and HR departments who need to better understand OSHA as an agency and the laws that govern it. I'm your host, Philip Russell. I'm a shareholder in the Tampa office of the firm. I have a national practice in which I have handled around 200 fatality cases and hundreds of other types of cases. We have one of the largest workplace safety and health practice groups in the country. We cover all 50 states with extensive experience with federal OSHA and many state plan states as well. Before I do a further intro, I want to at least uh, tell you who's joining me today. You've heard from them before here on the podcast, my friend Frank Davis in our Dallas office. Frank, welcome back to the show. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Well, folks, as I've said before here many times, uh, our approach here is simple, but maybe not easy. We try to help clients avoid or minimize OSHA citations and improve safety along the way. This podcast is about education. It's not about legal advice for specific circumstances. As an employer, we believe it is important that you all know what you can and can't do, but also what OSHA can and can't do. You can't hope to hold the agency accountable to the law if you don't know something about the law. I'm going to give you a further qualifier for today because we're going to talk today about something that OSHA is issuing this week in a proposed rule. And this proposed rule is what they call the worker walk-around representative designation process. It's been colloquially referred to as the worker or the uh, the walk-around rule. And it's a new rule. It's actually what some changes to an existing rule. And we'll talk in more detail, but here's my qualifier for you. It's not our intent today to be to, to take on a controversial issue and to step on anyone's toes and pick one side or the other, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, pro-union, anti-union. We're not doing that. But what we are talking today about is the law. And we're going to talk about what we think about the law and how this proposed rule fits within current law, existing law, whether we think it can survive some legal challenges. And then if it does, we're going to talk to you today about some of the impacts we can foresee this rule having on employers. So uh, with that said, Frank, I'm going to first of all explain what this rule change means, and I'm going to make it as simple as I can. And folks, if you want to know exactly what the text is, the rule is available. I put it up, uh, the link to it in my post yesterday and again today. You can find it that way. It'll be published in the Federal Register Friday, September 1st. That'll start a 60-day period in which employers, well, anyone really, We'll have an opportunity to submit their comments, and we, we certainly will be urging you to do so. So what the rule is changing is, is Section C of 29 CFR 1903.8, paragraph C. Two big changes. One change is that this designated or authorized representative of the employees, there was previously a mention to an industrial hygienist or a safety engineer as giving some guidance to OSHA as to who this person might be. Well, that's being taken out. So there's no longer, apparently, at least in the text, a qualification for someone with some expertise in safety. The other thing they're doing is adding a final sentence that reads, for the purposes of a walk-around inspection, the representative authorized by employees may be an employee of the employer or 
when they are reasonably necessary to aid in the inspection a third party. Of course, that really begs a big question there, doesn't it? Well, when will it be reasonably necessary when it has someone that, someone that doesn't have to have any background or expertise in safety? And that really poses lots of problems. So that's what the proposed change is. Go look at it for yourself, read it, digest it, make your, reach your own conclusions. Frank, let's talk about some of the modern history. How did we get to this point with this agency? Thanks, Philip. As you know, this original regulation that you discussed, 1903.8, was originally adopted back in the early 70s, roughly 1971. And for about 40 years, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration said, look, this this regulation doesn't uh, allow union reps to accompany a compliance officer unless that union rep has been elected through the National Labor Relations Board election process. They even uh, issued a letter in 2003 reaffirming that position. About 10 years later, though, OSHA changed its position in 2013. So 2013 really begins the modern era of OSHA, the Secretary of Labor, trying to expand the authority of third parties to be able to come in and accompany a compliance officer on an inspection. Uh, We know through different interpretive guidance that when they mean a third party, uh, OSHA was specifically referring to union officials that were not the elected bargaining representative of employees at that specific employer. Uh, And so in 2013, they issued their first opinion letter saying, look, workers at a work site without a collective bargaining agreement could designate a person affiliated with a union to act on their behalf during a walk around. Uh, And that that was called the Salmon Letter in 2013. Two years later, to, because there was some confusion, the previous letter had said exactly the opposite. The 2003 letter had provided exactly the opposite than what the Solomon letter had provided. So she said, look, we're going to withdraw that 2003 letter because that's just confusing everybody. We're going full in with this uh, unrepresented workforce and being able to identify a union rep to come in and walk around with a, an OSHA co-show. And so we're going to adopt the Solomon letter as as our rule of law, and we're going to incorporate it into the field operation manual. As you know, Philip, the field operation manual is the guidelines that OSHA compliance officers follow when they're conducting inspections. So starting in 2015, OSHA compliance officers are now thinking, sweet, I can have a union rep join me no matter what to help me think through this inspection. A lawsuit was filed in the Northern District of Texas here in Dallas, and, uh, and the judge struck down OSHA's authority to have a, a union representative accompany a, a co-show in an unrepresented facility said that the regulations didn't authorize that. And that took us back to where we started in 1971, where the union rep wasn't allowed in unless they were already elected through the National Labor Relations Board process and they were the, um, the certified bargaining representative of that bargaining unit. So essentially, OSHA tried this once before. And oh, yeah, that's decided right. it wasn't going to work, or the courts that said it wasn't going to work. Yeah, the court decided it wasn't going to work. Said, nice try, OSHA, but uh, it's not going to fly. Okay. So well, let's talk about the legislative history then, because we, we really are talking about two different federal laws here. We're talking about the National Labor Relations Act and its amendments over time, and we're talking about the OSHA Act in 1970. 
And the OSH Act, the section in OSH Act, I think it's 657C or E, actually, and I don't have it in front of me, but 657 of the OSH Act talks about an authorized representative. Well, in 1970, when that law was written, we already had labor laws on the books, the National Labor Relations Act, that has detailed procedures for how you become an authorized representative of somebody's employees. And so, as a practical matter, we still have those labor laws in place, right? <laughs> yeah. So I guess there, therein lies the probably the lead legal issue that we're going to see that we you both, uh, both you and I and our colleagues in our practice group, we expect to see court challenges. Maybe we'll be involved in some of these court challenges on this issue right there, which is can does OSHA have the legal authority to define what authorized representative means without referencing the National Labor Relations Act? I think not. What's the yeah? Yeah, I agree. I I think that this effort by OSHA should be preempted under 4B1 of the of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Uh, But you know, part of what they're relying on in the legislative history that you'll see as you read through this proposed rule is they say, hey, you know, going back to 1970, clearly there was some discussion about authorized representatives and. And uh, it, it certainly didn't limit authorized representatives to those that were duly certified bargaining agents that had been elected through the labor board process. But I think they're going to have a hard time reconciling that position ultimately with the 1959 Landrum Griffin Act. Uh, as you know, that the Landrum Griffin Act was designed to reform labor law because uh, during the mid to late 1950s, the labor movement was under intense congressional scrutiny for corruption, racketeering, and other misconduct. Specifically, they had a collusion between labor and management, or at least a perceived collusion between labor and management, where management would go out and choose the union for employees and then say, yeah, sure, here's the bargaining representative. Now we're just going to insert them. Well, the Landrum Griffin Act was designed to reverse that trend. Uh, it strengthened Taft-Hartley. Uh, and and made it where it was an employee election, where you had to have 50% plus one of the employees vote to bring in a union. This change that OSHA is suggesting won't require an employee vote at all. It, it'll just, uh, it would just rely on a compliance officer who has no background or experience in labor law uh, or, or no clear experience in labor law and no clear training to go and say, yeah, I think that you're right. I think that person over there is the union representative for this group of employees. Well, uh, let, me, and- let me lead you through a few fact pattern questions here. I'm, I'm just gonna, let's just put you on the spot here, my friend. If, a, if somebody right now walks up to an employer and says, and this is a non-unionized employer, um, someone walks up, knocks on the door and says, I'm here because I represent your employees. And I'd like to sit down in, in your conference room here and have a conversation about safety. And OSHA is not involved. Does the employer have to recognize that person, that individual, as the representative of the employees if there hasn't been uh, a process that's followed under the National Labor Relations Act? Well, yeah, if there's been no showing of a majority interest among the, the purported bargaining unit group of employees, then there's no obligation whatsoever to bargain. So the employer could simply say, no, thank you. We don't recognize you as the authorized representative because you haven't gone through the law. You haven't followed the law in order to be the authorized representative of my employees. And I'm, in fact, Philip, I would add to it, they'd be breaking the law if they did try to okay. the union. 
as the authorized bargaining representative of those employees without a showing of interest, a majority showing of interest. Okay, so now, same fact pattern, but the person shows up with OSHA. That's what it seems OSHA is trying to change here is to flip the narrative or flip the circumstance such that someone that wants to target an employer could potentially now use the government as its tool. Am I reading this right? Uh, that's how I read it as well. Well, I mean, look, let's let's reference this. Let's go back to day one of the Biden administration. And again, not to get too political here, folks, but you, you have to look at what the current folks in charge said they were going to do. And President Biden on day one and even during the campaign said that this was going to be the most labor friendly administration in the history. And we've seen there's actually right now lots of changes going on in other areas of labor laws. The National Labor Relations Act of the NLRB has taken a lot of action this summer, but a busy summer for our, our executive branch friends. And it does seem that this is just one more component in that commitment. Yeah, well, notably, the, the first time this uh, walk around rule came up was in 2013 under President Obama. Uh, we didn't hear anything about it during the last president's term. And now here we here it goes again. Yeah, and look, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that follows any aspect of labor and employment law, be it OSHA or, or traditional labor, that you know you have different approaches to the law and enforcement of the laws from Republican administrations to Democrat administrations. Um, and there are tendencies in both, and there are exceptions to both. So that's why folks don't go too far when we're identifying Republicans and Democrats here. They're not always consistent, and they don't always follow the narrative. But there are some tendencies. So let's talk about this. This next step, though. So what, what do you think happens here, Frank? I mean, this thing hits, uh, you know, it doesn't become final until they finish the comment period. They've got 60 days in which to do it. At that point, I believe, is the point at which you begin to see uh, the uh, once the rule is final. I think that's when you begin to see some court cases filed challenging the rule. Is that what you're expecting, too? That's what I would expect. Uh, I, I, I don't know what basis would have to file a lawsuit before uh, OSHA publishes the final rule and threatens to implement it. Yeah, I think that's what we're looking at. That So that'll be probably, once the comment period is over, They who knows how long it'll take after then to reach a final rule, but perhaps sometime next uh, next first or second quarter of 2024, which is right in the middle of the campaign. Uh, <laughs> right. So that might be, might be part of the political narrative at the time, if there's room for any discussions of things like labor laws and employment and OSHA laws, but um, we'll see. But yeah, the timing on this could be interesting. Right around that same time in March, coincidentally, I think there's going to be a decision perhaps from the Supreme Court on the on another topic we'll have to save for another day, which is the uh, Chevron deference case, which is reexamining how much authority does should or how much deference should courts give agencies in, I think, situations like this. And when you look at the term authorized representative, I think the Supreme Court very much will look at, could look at this case in light of its new rule, which we expect to come out in March, about how much deference courts should give in agencies, executive agencies. B big issues that I think you could see come together in 2024. I think you're exactly right. It, it's an interesting time. You know, Justice Scalia had originally wanted to bring the, the Chevron issue to bear over a decade ago. It's interesting that the Supreme Court's finally gotten around to evaluating it. And I am curious to see what the outcome will be, although curious to see what the outcome will be. It'll be interesting. But I think also, too, our listeners, I know are familiar with the emergency temporary standard that uh, OSHA tried to promulgate uh, last year, year and a half ago now, about uh, the uh, COVID crisis and the rule that OSHA tried to implement, where if you have more than 100 employees, you had to either test or require vaccine. 
the Supreme Court shot it down six to three. And the basis was that it, it the the rule, the proposed emergency temporary standard exceeded OSHA's authority. Uh, and it was such a big question. There's another doctrine at the Supreme Court that it needed to, its major question needed to be addressed by Congress. I think you could see here, you know, the legal challenges saying that, look, if authorized representative in the OSH Act doesn't mean what it is, what it's defined or what it's explained as in the National Labor Relations Act, then Congress needs to define it, not the agency, not OSHA. Congress needs to go back and clean up the statute. So we'll see. All right, my friend, let's talk about what. So what if it challenge, what if it survives these challenges and this rule becomes final? There's a couple of practical impacts, I think, that you and I have observed. We've talked about a couple of them already with that fact panel a few minutes ago. But what else do you see could be the practical impact on OSHA inspections with this rule if it survives and is in place, say, six months or a year from now? The practical impact, we, we currently see that kind of uh, impact whenever you have an OSHA inspection of a, an organized workplace, right, where a union already is present and where that uh, business agent or that representative for the union participates. Uh, it, in many jurisdictions, some jurisdictions, some OSHA jurisdictions are stronger than others, but in many jurisdictions, uh, OSHA really seems to take a a backseat to what the union is dictating. And and while OSHA might have a conclusion that, for instance, there's no violation, that they might not have the wherewithal to stand up to a union business agent saying, what do you mean no violation? You, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. So what I tend to see in that organized environment is while there's no real justification to issue a citation, when you get that union involved, just the, the mere pressure of having that additional person there frequently causes OSHA to issue a citation that otherwise would not have been issued. Like you, we usually get them thrown out but because there's not a good basis for the citation to issue. Uh, but nevertheless, there's still that added hassle and expense. Uh, and of course, that added hassle and expense certainly isn't addressed in this proposed rule that OSHA's uh, identified. In fact, they've said there'll be virtually no increase in cost. Well, and, and I think that actually you're touching upon something that OSHA knows they haven't addressed yet, because the three questions that OSHA wants comments on that they've put in into the proposed rule or in the announcement for the proposed rule, three questions. And the first one deals with the selection of the representative. The second one deals with the presumption, and the third one focuses on the criteria. So that means that even OSHA itself, they have not yet formulated what this should look like. And if they're not going to put it in 1903.8, they're not going to put it in the standard in the regulation here, then where is it going to be? Is it going to be in the field operation manual? Because these three issues of the selection of the representative, you know, and this is, by the way, the question here is, should OSHA, meaning the compliance officer, should the COSO defer to the employee selection of the representative. Yeah, see, two. right there, I think it ought to say CEG National Labor Relations Act. Right, exactly. <laughs> but that's why I guess it's your point earlier is that OSHA is really trying to create something from the OSHA Act that is not apparent on its face. And when I think there's plenty of legislative history you said before that shows, no, the intent here was that this would be an authorized representative. Those terms have meaning in the law. Second question, should the COSHO, and again, they say OSHA, but I'm saying COSHO because that's really who this is going to impact. I think OSHA, by the way, side note here, because I know some of the COSHOs, current and former, may be listening. I think they should be involved in these questions. 
I think they should consider these because I think OSHA really should consider how this is going to impact their coaches in the field. But that, that's a, a point of mine that I'm concerned hey. about. You and I work with a lot of those people. I respect those men and women that do their jobs and work hard and try and make safety better. And, and uh, you know, they, I, I just wonder about them. How are they going to make this decision on the selection? How are they going to decide what to do? Well, yeah, I don't think you, you can get any uh, objectively reasonable result by putting, you know, these hundreds of co-shows out there to make independent decisions. There's just no way to have central guidance to ensure that it's a reasonable and and standardized way to evaluate this. That's why the labor board has so many rules, right, about how to go and select the bargaining representative. It's to try to be as objective as possible. And there's nothing, there's, there's, there's no tool here that, that ensures that. You know, if, if you don't like the outcome of an election because you believe that of a union election under the National Labor Relations uh, Act, because you feel like it has has been um, administered poorly or there's some other um, unfair labor practice that yielded an inaccurate result, you have an appeal right before you have to actually begin to, to engage in, in the full representation process. But there's nothing like that here. I mean, you take a, you take a, a process uh, that can be three weeks to, to, to three months with, under the labor board, and you reduce it to a three-minute process for, to a co-show here to select a bargaining representative. It makes no sense, Philip. Yeah, it, and I mean, you know, I know enough about labor law to spot a few issues here and there, but as I recall, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act says employees have the right to engage in collective bargaining and collective activities but they also have a right not to engage Correct. in these activities. And how is that right protected by this move? I, I, I don't see it. But here, here's question number two, Frank. Should OSHA retain the language as proposed, but add a presumption for the compliance officer that a third party representative authorized by employees is reasonably necessary? A presumption on what basis? OSHA, you just took out. You just took out of the proposed rule references to an industrial hygienist or a safety engineer. So what presumption would our friends at our co-shows have to work with here? Final one, should OSHA expand the criteria for an employee's representative, that is a third party, to participate in the inspection to include circumstances when the COSHO determines that such participation would aid employees in effectively exercising their rights under the OSHA Act? Yeah, you What's know that? what those examples are? Because they, they raised them in the earlier part of the discussion, right? They said, well, you know, if an employee's not fluent in English, then maybe they'll choose somebody who from, from a union who could help them translate or where the employee may not be comfortable speaking with the COSHA, they might be more comfortable speaking with a union representative also that they've never met, but maybe they'd be happier with that. So we'll give them the option. The, those were the, the two areas that I thought they, that OSHA speculated about that referred to, to, to question number three and those requests that they had of, for comments. Well, I don't know if OSHA expects it or not, but I would encourage our friends that are co-shows and retired co-shows to, you know what, you guys can submit comments too. So jump in. Yeah, that's um, a good point. And I would say, let me add this to me. So there is the process here. This was just you know announced before this happened over the last few weeks, this regulation or this proposed rule sat with the White House. It sat with the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And twice I was actually honored by two industry associations to go with them or appear with them at these meetings with the regulators. Now, they had the benefit of having this document in front of them, probably exactly as it reads now, and, and listen to what comments and feedback we had. And I thought it was an interesting question I got from both groups was, 
was, have you experienced in your inspections, in your career, have you experienced situations where the compliance officers needed help? And the answer was yes. There have been several occasions in which there were very complicated technical issues in manufacturing plants, utility plant, uh, and construction sites where the compliance officer clearly needed some help. And you know what? They got it. But they got it from inside OSHA because OSHA does have subject matter experts, engineers, and others inside the agency that can help. So I just don't even see, even practically speaking, what's the need here that we're trying to fulfill? I mean, from a, from a helping the co-show perspective, what is the need? Have they, I mean, if you did a survey monkey out to all of them in the agency right now, does this really reach the top of the list? They need help. I don't think so. I don't think so either. And, you know, Philip, I think you've made the best point of this entire podcast with that, with that point you made right there. OSHA is qualified uh, to, to address these issues. They don't need to bring somebody in from, from the outside to address these issues, uh, certainly not from a union perspective. No, as I say, I think that these have all been good points. And thanks for joining me today, Frank. I'll give you a first shot at closing comments and then I'll close us out. Well, I think the main closing comment I would have is if you're an employer and you haven't had a chance to review the worker walk around representation designation process proposed rule, get a hold of it as soon as you can. Philip's got a great source for it. Feel free to reach out to me. I'll send it to you. But this is a good opportunity to make comments. And I think that uh, you, you should think through these issues on your own as an employer and decide you know, whether this is right for you. And if not, then it's a good time to make comments and ask for some clarification from OSHA. Yeah, indeed. Agreed fully, Frank. Thank you so much. And folks, thanks again for joining us here at Dirty Steel Toe Boots. And it's always a pleasure to try and help you understand more about this agency, what it does, why it does the things it does, if we can figure it out. Uh, we appreciate your thoughts and, and your contributions as you digest this. You know, obviously reach out to us if you have further or different thoughts. Uh, always happy to have a good, robust discussion with everyone. The things we say here today, not advice for any specific legal situation and not even advice for how you ought to look at this. Feel free to reach your own conclusions. But that's what Frank and I have to think about this. And, uh, you know, not necessarily even the position of, uh, of our firm Ogletree, but a couple of lawyers that do this sort of thing a little bit. So hope this was helpful to you all and you learned something. We'll see you next time on another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Philip. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.